pop quiz for you. Out of all the violence and persecution in the world that is religiously motivated, 75% of victims belong to which religion? Sadly, if you guessed Christianity, you would be right. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Thomas Williams, author of the recently published book, The Coming Christian Persecution, Why Things Are Getting Worse and How to Prepare for What Is to Come. Williams highlights how the persecution of Christians is not just an artifact of history. It is happening right now in ways and at a scale that believers and non-believers alike fail to fully grasp. We discuss how systematic persecution of the followers of Christ persists in countries like North Korea, Nigeria, Pakistan, and China, how soft persecution against Christians, as well as instances of violence, are on the rise in the West, how those who profess Jesus as Lord are called to both prepare for suffering and resist oppression, and how combating persecution ultimately begins and ends with cultivating the proper disposition of heart and mind. Dr. Williams currently serves as Rome Bureau Chief for Breitbart News and is the author of 17 books in the fields of theology, philosophy, ethics, and spirituality. He also teaches theology at the Rome campus of St. John's University and has served as a media commentator on faith, ethics, and religion for such networks as NBC, CBS, and Sky News. Be the first to know whenever a new episode of The Podcast on Church, State, and Faithful Citizenship is available by subscribing to the show. Thanks so much for listening in. There are two swords, and the question is, which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant, but God's first. Dr. Thomas Williams, welcome to Crown and Crozier. Thank you, Patrick. It is a pleasure to be on your show. Look forward to this. We're talking about your recent book, The Coming Christian Persecution, Why Things Are Getting Worse, and How to Prepare for What is to Come. Right off the bat, I want to set the stage and define our terms and the general parameters of our dialogue for today. So persecution. How do you define it in your book and, and what are some of the qualitative guardrails that you apply for that term? Well, in the traditional sense, persecution usually referred to a bloody persecution. In other words, uh, aggression in, in a violent form that usually led to either loss of life or, or at least physical damage to a person. Nowadays, if you look it up in Merriam-Webster or any other dictionary, it gives a much broader umbrella under which uh, persecution is considered. So oppression, harassment, uh, discrimination, uh, it can take many different forms. And in the book, I try to define that out as well. And I talk about the more violent uh, traditional forms of persecution, but other forms that easily lead into that. Softer, if you will, forms of persecution that easily uh, drift into harder forms. Among the key themes from your book is on that precise understanding of, of persecution itself, that there might be a sense of, well, religious persecution, looking back centuries past, it was bloody, it was gory, it was violent, but you know that's not really the case these days. We've, we've kind of moved beyond that. But one of the themes that comes across so clearly from your book is, no, it's, it's the opposite. The, the violent persecution of Christians persists. And yes, there's also been this ascendancy of what we might call soft persecution as well. And is, is that the case? 
Oh, it's definitely the case. Um, I mean, it's it's honestly astonishing to me. And one of the real reasons uh, that motivated me to write the book was what I saw as really growing bloody persecution, but also growing ignorance in the face of this, where most people, myself included, at least until a few years ago, I was completely blithely unaware of this. I just didn't realize the extent, the magnitude of the problem. And it's incredible. I mean, if I may, two pieces of data will just, I think, make this crystal clear to anybody. The number of Christians presently suffering that harder form of persecution, that fear for life and limb, is about 360 million in the world today. If you look around, those who live in situations where every day they wonder if they're going to be assaulted, if they're going to be arrested or thrown in jail because of their faith. Uh, The second piece of data, which I think is equally important, is that of all the people in the world who are persecuted for their faith, whatever that faith might be, three out of four of those, 75% are Christians. So we hear a fair amount about anti-Semitism. It's a terrible thing. We hear a lot about Islamophobia. It's a terrible thing. We hear about people who suffer for their faith. But it's important for your listeners to to realize and remember that three out of four people in the world persecuted for their faith are Christians. It's the most persecuted religion in the world. One of the most astonishing takeaways for me from your book was this very topic itself. You had a passage in there in reference to uh, a page on Wikipedia, which talks about the the purported Christian persecution complex and seeking to debunk that as almost a myth. Whereas the data that you present are very compelling. And in addition to what you just articulated, a couple of tidbits that jumped out for me, one in eight Christians worldwide experiences high levels of persecution and discrimination. And every day, 13 Christians are killed, 12 illegally arrested or imprisoned, five abducted, and 12 churches or Christian buildings attacked. Those are all astounding figures. And among the questions that comes to mind is, where is all this happening? Uh, particularly in, in Western developed countries, there might be the sense of, well, you know, this doesn't really sound familiar, although in other places in your book, you poke holes in the logic of that argument. But for many observers or pundits, it, it doesn't sound familiar. And, and there's this sense of, well, if there is persecution, it's it's somewhere over there. It's somewhere elsewhere. So these types of, of data, these types of, of incidents, you know, where exactly are they happening? Yeah, I mean, and, and why aren't we told a little bit more about it? I mean, 13 people killed every day. Christians killed every single day. And when's the last time we saw that in the news? But mm-hmm. uh, it, it's really all over. It's true that there are certain places that are kind of like black holes. Uh, for example, North Korea. North Korea is notorious in its treatment of Christians. Uh, it has absolutely zero tolerance at all for Christian belief or practice. And you can be killed on the spot or imprisoned on the spot for, for example, possessing a Bible or for trying to pray in any way that is visibly uh, visibly prayer. But there are a number of others as well that are a little bit closer to home. The Middle East comes to mind immediately because we've you know, been through in the last seven or eight years a really atrocious situation. They are really at the hands of radical Islam as the primary driver of the anti-Christian persecution. But others, uh, what's considered right now the country where it's most dangerous to be a Christian in the sense you're most likely to die for your faith is Nigeria. Mm. And Nigeria, it's funny because, funny, it's it's interesting, um, it's only about 51 to 52 percent Muslim, and it's got a very large Christian population. But the form of Islam there is very radicalized. Uh, and whether you're talking about Boko Haram, which is an Islamic terror group up in the north, or you're talking about the Fulani 
uh, raiders. They sometimes call them the Fulani herdsmen. Uh, it's an ethnic group, but they are really working uh, in, in the minds of many anyway to Islamify the country, that there is a real active campaign to eradicate Christianity uh, from the nation of Nigeria. So this really, uh, it happens around the world. We hear something about China. We don't hear the, the full extent because you know a lot of people, even the Catholic Church, uh, the, the Vatican wants to make nice with China and doesn't speak much about the, the radical persecution that's going on there, but it's very, very real. In your book, you do trot out a list of the worst actors, and, and there are eight countries in particular where you shine a more detailed light on their transgressions. North Korea, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Nigeria, India, China, and Pakistan. When you were doing your research, did you have a preconceived notion that some of these actors were definitely going to make the cut? Or were there any surprises for you in terms of winnowing it down to those core group of eight states? Well, it, it does honestly even vary from year to year, that list of actors. There's a, there's a group, a Christian persecution watchdog group called Open Doors that, that publishes a yearly watch list. And every year they have a top 10 uh, places where it's most dangerous to be a Christian. And it, it changes every year. There's a lot of repeats, obviously. Uh, sometimes countries go up or down on the list. And so it's, it's kind of interesting also to watch how countries, how that changes. For example, Iraq in the last couple of years has actually moved a little bit down simply because the number of Christians is, is becoming infinitesimally small. And so the act of persecution, we've, they've already driven out so many Christians out of Iraq that, that honestly, those who are left are, are a real remnant of that flock. Um, so the reason that you could say that the persecution seems a little less is because it's already accomplished its end. They, they effectively have eliminated Christianity in large part from the country. Um, in others, again, N Nigeria just continues to climb. Um, others are pretty much stationary. North Korea for the last 10, 15 years pretty much has always been uh, among the top because it's, it's just ruthless and there is simply no concession. There's no tolerance whatsoever. But yeah, it is, it is somewhat in flux and it is interesting to see. I, I did have preconceived notions, but I follow this and I've been following it for some years. So I pretty much had my finger on the pulse of, of where the, the worst persecution was really happening. Maybe the biggest surprise for me was India, because India is another one that's been growing. We think of Indians as very peace-loving people, Hindus uh, as a very, you know, even as a peaceful religion. Uh, but in the last several years, especially with the change of government with a member of the very, very radicalized uh, Hindu nationalist party uh, as prime minister, that persecution has grown worse and worse in India. I know for me, there's always been a sense that if you say, religious conflict and India in the same sentence, well, you're probably thinking of conflict between the Hindus and the Muslim population in that country, but it's much broader than that. Yeah, it is. It is broader and it's, it's become much more aggressive. It's not just a question of, I mean, Christians in a certain sense have always been considered second rate citizens in India, and there's always been a certain degree of discrimination. But now more and more in the last two, three years, uh, there's a lot of overt uh, assaults on Christians, especially around Christmas time, around the Christian holidays, you'll find this is particularly active. For those eight countries, in terms of the worst actors, is all or most of the persecution state-sponsored? Interesting question. Uh, some of it's uh, state-sponsored. Uh, in a lot of cases, I think most people in the West don't realize how many, for example, confessionally Islamic states there still are. And that's, you know, that is simply a, a, a fact. Like, 
Afghanistan, the real name of Afghanistan is not Afghanistan. It's the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Pakistan is the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. These are uh, confessionally Islamic countries where really there is only one religion that is accepted. Uh, there is a certain level of tolerance for Christians who really don't actively uh, practice their faith in any way in public. They're not hunted down if they don't do that. But woe to you if you ever speak the name of Jesus on the street or woe even more if you try to evangelize anyone uh, that that could mean, you know, the death sentence for you there. Is any Christian denomination more at risk than others in these countries or does that vary by geography or other circumstances or factors? It does vary by geography in the sense that countries that have, for example, a very strong Presbyterian component, that that's the group that's going to be most attacked. But I think worldwide, both because of uh, demographics, the numbers, and also because of its visibility, its very recognizability, the Catholic Church, I think, has always been a special target of this sort of aggression. Uh, because of the way, for example, uh, Catholic clergy dress, the way that the Catholic Church is viewed as also as an institution, which is very large on the world scale. I remember during the time of the, the, the biggest strength of the Islamic State, there was ongoing uh, direct address to the Pope in Rome, basically saying, this is, you know, we are coming for you because Rome was kind of looked upon as the encapsulization of, of everything that is the Christian West. What would you say to the skeptic who might continue to, to shrug shoulders or minimize or, or rationalize whether religious persecution and, and persecution of Christians is an actual phenomenon uh, in North America or Europe? Well, you know, to tell you the truth, as appalling as the widespread bloody persecution is right now in the world, and it is appalling, and I and I, I would in no way minimize that, I'm actually more concerned um, about the growing Christian persecution in the West uh, for two reasons. One, because the West, the post-Christian West, the West which was defined by Christianity in its birth and in its formation, has been really the strongest opponent to this sort of persecution in the world, the one who would defend, that the West would be the defender of Christians around the world. And that is no longer the case. We see a lacking, a lack of political will in this regard. There's a lack of appreciation for uh, religious liberty as the first right, as the first liberty, uh, something that first was kind of brought down to the same level of any, of any other right, and then sometimes even looked upon as an excuse to discriminate and so brought down even, if you will, below uh, the importance of other rights. And that's very, very worrisome. Uh, the second reason is because I think uh, in, in the West, the accelerated rate with which uh, Christians were viewed first as an extraordinarily positive contribution to society, as, as something you could count on Christians to be the backbone of society, honest, hardworking, uh, responsible bearers of, of values that the West treasured and that really made the West uh, what it is. And now it, Christianity is often demonized. And, it, and it's a very, very short jump from first, you know, look up, looking upon a group with a certain uh, diffidence uh, and then really with more hostility and treating and trying to really demonize them as you, you we hear this often now we didn't used to in my own lifetime this has changed radically where now christians are regularly called big, bigots uh christians are called systematically intolerant 
where Christians are looked upon as, as the problem, as haters. Um, and this is something, the more this kind of language grows, where Christians are demonized and looked upon as the enemy, as the problem, then the passage over to a much more aggressive form of persecution is just, it is just could happen at any time. Uh, this is something that we saw it, for example, I, I don't mean to mix apples and oranges here, but look at World War II, the way that the Jews were characterized uh, in Nazi Germany before the actual unleashing of violent persecution against the Jews. First, it was the way that they were treated. They were caricatured, that they were treated as as greedy, as you know, off in their own thing and et cetera. And then the next thing from that step to, you know, let's round them up. It was it happened overnight. Um, and I'm not saying we're at that point in the West, but it can happen that quickly. And I think that this move to uh, really change people's public view of what Christians are and what they represent for society, uh, first of all, is having an effect of draining Christianity. Uh, there are a lot of people who are just leaving. They're, they're upset and they're afraid and they're, uh, they're confused by what Christians really are and what we believe. And then secondly, there's also a lot more active hostility and an unwillingness uh, to accept the goodwill of Christians as something to be taken for granted. Where did all this hostility come from? How, how do you kind of put your finger on the animus that seems to be percolating in modern day society, particularly in the West, uh, that's directed at Christians? I, I think, I mean, for lack of a better term, I would call it uh, a radical secularist agenda. I think that there is um, a sufficient critical mass in society that really believes that progress means leaving behind Christianity, particularly with regard to morality, and that Christians are looked upon as kind of the last major barrier to a project that's been underway for at least since the 1960s, but we could go back, obviously, even to the 19th century, really, for the, the roots of this. Um, and, and that's allied with a very aggressive form of atheism. Um, it's allied with uh, um, this kind of belief that progress is necessary and, to, and for progress to happen, it has to leave religious faith behind, which it kind of links to superstition. Superstition and religious faith are kind of the same thing. It's a relic of the past. It holds people back and it keeps them from being liberated, the liberation that this agenda th uh, seeks to promise. Well, I was really taken in your book by two individuals whose anti-Christian views you explored in depth and for whom you connected dots between their perspectives and philosophies uh, and a lot of the ambient anti-Christian skepticism or hostility that, that we observe in our present day time. The first one was Voltaire, the French author. Uh, the second one, Edward Gibbon, the historian. And, and between the two of them, I was really struck by what you zeroed in on as kind of the key things that they latched onto, which animated their anti-Christian animus. Among other things, the sense of of Christians just being too zealous, almost too exuberant, like they can't just do their thing in private in the corner in the closet where no one can see them. But no, they they kind of have to go put things on display and and they provoke their rulers. Uh, they, they, they make a fuss. Uh, they draw attention to themselves. They're irrational or, or in Gibbon's case, he seemed to take issue with particularly the early Christians refusing to, to serve in the Roman army or serve in public office. And and this sense of not being concerned with the common good and, and in fact, acting in ways that are counter to the common good. 
Could you just speak a little bit more to the connection that you see between those two individuals and their schools of thought and, and perhaps other thinkers who were lumped into that category, the connection between them and what we can observe in the 21st century? Well, you know, this goes back to this. We see it all over the place and all through time, all through history. Um, basically, that question of where people's allegiance, especially their supreme allegiance, should go. And I think that both Voltaire and Gibbon really did believe the Christians should have just been like the others, practicing their religion, but also being willing to do uh, what Rome required in terms of little sacrifices here to the emperor, little, you know, play nice with, with, the, reigning, with the reigning rulers, instead of being so blasted, uh, you know, as you say, zealous and unwilling to compromise on these questions and insisting that their absolute allegiance is to God, first of all, and only secondarily to the state. And I think that this is something that we find this in these uh, Enlightenment intellectuals, but we also find it in modern totalitarianisms. That's exactly the, the same um, real complaint that they have against Christians is that Christians have this second allegiance. They do not worship the state. They do not worship as the state tells them to do. Uh, they believe that there is a higher power and that they have a, a greater responsibility. And that is something that is for many, just completely unacceptable. And I think that uh, that's something, again, that we've seen throughout history. We did see it in the Roman Empire, uh, especially under certain em uh, emperors, but we also saw it in a big way uh, under many communist regimes, for example, in the last century. And we continue to see it to this day. We mentioned North Korea a little bit earlier, but that's a, a perfect example of this, where North Korea's intolerance, absolute intolerance of Christianity comes for this very reason. In that same chapter where you diagnose the problem, you mentioned the folks like Voltaire and Gibbon and, and the militantly atheistic uh, regimes in the world. But you also spend time talking about the spiritual dimension and the spiritual angle of all of this. And I was struck in particular by your simple description that in seeking to understand this, we, we need to recognize that not just today, but throughout the ages, it's been the goodness on the part of Christians, which has incited a wrath uh, amongst their persecutors, and that the moral goodness of the Christian life, I'm, I'm quoting here from your book, the moral goodness of the Christian life serves as a constant reproach to the immoral world that wants to be affirmed rather than challenged. Could you speak to that a little more? Absolutely. I, I mean, we can't do justice to this question from a Christian perspective, from, if you will, a theological perspective without really underscoring the importance of the spiritual battle that's going on, uh, that this is something that is not just flesh and blood. It's not just uh, a question of ideas, a clash of ideas or worldviews. There really is also a spiritual battle that involves spiritual elements, that involves Satan, that involves demons, that involves angels, that involves the grace of God, that involves our own spiritual life and the battle that's in, in every human heart. Uh, this is something that for us is very, very important. And maybe sociologists, if they look at Christian persecution, they will look at it without this element. But I think for us to understand it completely, this is what really permeates it. And when we experience this and we look at it in our own lives, we realize that it really is, there's a, there's a key spiritual element that's actually at the core of what's going on in the world. And there is a hatred of goodness and there is a hatred of God. And, and the hatred of God is what extends over to Christians. It was Jesus himself who said, you know, if they if they hated me, they're going to hate you, too. And they're going to hate you because of me. They're going to hate you because they hate me. And this is something that 
I don't think everyone who persecutes Christians is even aware of this, but that doesn't mean that that's not exactly what's animating their, their own hostility. It's something that they might not be able to put their finger on, but they're also subject to a power that hates God. And I, and I think that that is something, again, that we have to have very much front and center if we're going to understand in any way what this persecution means. For me, that was one of the most striking takeaways uh, from the whole book. I've certainly found myself in situations with friends, acquaintances, strangers, where you do get into these conversations of, well, yes, there is hardship for Christians in some places on the planet. And, you know, you think of the bad actors like uh, the countries we mentioned in, in, in Asia and the like. But again, there, there can be this real skepticism or almost ridicule of the notion that Christians here in the West and Europe, like you got to be kidding me, you guys have been you guys have ruled this roost for centuries. And, and now you think your backs are up against the wall. I mean, there's, there's no way you can make a comparison between the plight of your brethren halfway across the world and the plight of your brethren in, in Chicago, New York, and Toronto, and, and Miami. But when you look at it through the spiritual lens, you realize that the persecution of the faithful Christian in the villages of Iraq, it, it is the same side of the coin of the, the soft persecution that is directed at the faithful Christians in the Midwest, uh, in the prairies. And, and it really boils down to that spiritual, that spiritual battle and the war that is waged in human heart. And whether your neighbors or whether the, or whether the people in power uh, are, are willing to make space or willing to acknowledge the supremacy of God. I mean, it, it kind of does really boil down to that and, and whether that's accepted or, or whether that's resisted. For me, that was the most compelling takeaway. We can split hairs. We can maybe try and say there are some qualitative differences. But the root and the origin is, is actually the same. Yeah, sure. They're manifestations of the same hatred of God, which is really what that is, a, a hatred that boils, if you will, in the heart of Satan. And that is will always be until the end of time. This battle will will be going on and Christians will find themselves at the, you know, the, the target of this because it's a hatred of, of those who love God, those who try to follow Jesus Christ. Um, it's just something that has to be there. Um, and I think that you know, part of uh, what's happening in the West also is an unwillingness to acknowledge the reality of what's happening and how things are changing. And you know, one example that's not in the book because it's so recent, it just happened weeks ago, but it's very interesting, both the fact of it and the way it was reported and discussed, which was that, that horrific shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. Uh, it was that young transgender woman uh, or woman who believed she was a man or dressed like whatever. Um, but the point was she went into a Christian school because it was a Christian school and she shot six people, three of whom were nine-year-old kids and three of whom were, were members of the staff. And that was upsetting enough in itself. And it was clearly, it was an attack on a Christian school again, because it was Christian. She didn't know those individuals. She wasn't saying, oh, there's little Bobby and I hate Bobby. No, I hate this school because what it represents. And this is just like you know, when people go into villages in Nigeria because they know that Christians live there and set fire to churches and houses, uh, it's the same sort of, of hostility. But then the way this was reported on the Nashville event was, well, this comes from, you know, such anti-transgender rhetoric that you can expect this kind of, you know, of a lash out, a backlash, if you will, to, to Christianity that's been so unsupportive and intolerant of of transgender. So basically a defense of this woman's actions despite and making her look like the victim, despite the fact that she had actually shot six people 
And then as far as we know, there's been never any violence toward her, and especially not from anyone you know, doing it in the name of Jesus. Uh, this is just not happening. Um, but that, that sort of unwillingness to put the blame where the blame should be and to show who actually is the target, uh, our, our ability to switch those things around is, is very scary. My headspace going into opening up your book, I'll be the first to admit, uh, when I saw the subject matter and read the jacket, I thought, okay, uh, the opening pages, I'm probably going to hear about persecutions in, in East Asia or, or the hardships in, in Pakistan or the violence in Nigeria. But the first three examples that you open your book with are taken from France, Poland, and Chile, the latter being uh, several churches having been burned to the ground. Uh, and in France, I believe it was the attack against a priest who was celebrating mass and had his throat slit. So to your point, this stuff is real and it's it's not contained. It's not contained to the places over there, uh, halfway across the world. It's not contained in it. And it's also not just uh, an archipelago of isolated incidents. It's an ongoing trend and, and you see it manifesting itself in more and more ways. But I think that it's important, as you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, really to connect these dots, to see that there is a logic behind it, that there is a constancy behind it. Uh, again, this is not random and, it, and it's not isolated. Among the other things I was struck reading your book was this notion of persecution as patrimony. It's our heritage as Christians. It's part of the game. It's part of the bargain. This is almost like what you signed up for if you followed Jesus. As you were composing this book, did you find yourself struggling with that question? Like there's so much persecution, but you know what? Christ told us to expect this. So how do we wrap our heads around that? Well, I, I think, you know, that's a fantastic question, Patrick. I, I think that all of us who, who believe, all of us who are disciples of Christ, uh, have to ask ourselves that question. And I think there's, on the one hand, the way we embrace the cross in our own lives, the way we accept whatever forms persecution takes, um, as and, and as much as possible, as is written about the apostles when they were flogged in the in the in the synagogue, you know they they rejoiced because they've been found worthy to suffer for the name. That it is a badge of honor for a Christian to be found similar enough to Christ, or you know related, if you will, or, or found to resemble Christ in such a way that that we suffer in His name. That is a badge of honor. It's something that is to be expected and to be embraced. On the other hand, we are not called to be passive in this. We want people to be able to worship God freely. We, we believe that it's very important. And many of, of our weaker brethren also, uh, they need, you know, every advantage they can have. And a lot of people, for a lot of people, uh, you know, active persecution, it, it's too much. And, and so we would like to see, both for the sake of the persecutors themselves. I mean, you know, Jesus said, pray for your persecutors. And part of that is for their conversion, right? It's not just pray that they leave us alone, but it's praying also for a conversion of their hearts because they are our brothers and sisters as well. But it's also really wishing people to be able to worship God in peace and in freedom. This is the common good. We work for the common good. And a big part of that is this really bedrock right of being able to worship God freely. And I think that that's something that we will, have, will always have an obligation to fight for and to stand up for. And it's not a question of looking for privileges or, or special treatment. It's not a question even of just, you know, looking for something that benefits us. It's something that benefits society 
and is part of that common good. It's part of those social conditions that make it easier uh, for people to, to live good and holy and virtuous lives. And we have to fight for that. That's part of part of what we're here on earth to do is to work for that common good so that all people you know, can find and worship God and live good and holy lives um, as, as easily, if you will, as possible. Given everything that you've done in your research and, and, and how deeply you remain seized with this topic of persecution and the anecdotes and the, the, the news that comes to your attention, do, do we need to guard ourselves as Christians against a lack of caution or prudence in, in weaker times uh, when we survey the landscape around us and might be tempted to succumb to despair or cynicism? Do we need to guard ourselves against some kind of some kind of nostalgia or, or misguided notion of, well, persecution may have some benefits and, you know, maybe the church needs to wake up and this is the wake up call? How would you respond to that? Well, I, no, I, I, I think that historically speaking, when we look, it is, it is unquestionable that in periods of intense persecution, we had amazing martyr saints that we still um, look to today, that we that are our heroes. We look back and our memory is of these these martyr heroes that, you know, stood firm in the face of of, of the worst tortures and the worst torments and and. And they still did not deny Christ. And, and they are, for a reason, they're our heroes. And they, even in their own time, they did give birth to great numbers of followers who just said, this is, if it's worth that much, you know, I want a piece of this too. This is this is something that's worth living for. It's something that's worth dying for. And I think that, again, it, it is an irony, but I, but I think that the two really do go together in the sense that we do recognize that the, the, the blessings and the benefits and the fruits that God brings out of persecution. There's, that's unquestionable. At the same time, we don't want persecution. We're not you know, anxious for persecution to get worse and worse because there are also, and we don't talk as much about this, but there are also those who fall because of it. Mm -hmm. There are those who leave the faith. There are those who abandon Christ. There are those who, who and, and so you have a, you know, a small, beautiful flock, but you also have many people who, who don't have the courage, they don't have the strength to stand up for that. And, and I think that that souls are lost in the process. And, you know, and we have to also want the world to be a better place. We know the world is never going to be perfect. We're not going to have paradise on earth. We know that that is that utopia is not a Christian vision of the world. And at the same time, we are called to work for the betterment of the world. And part of that betterment unquestionably involves um, this this living in peace and living in freedom, even you know, when St. Peter writes, he says, you know, pray for your leaders so that they let you live in peace. I mean, this is what you're looking for. You're looking for just, you know, let us worship God as we will. And, and again, as, as Gibbon and Voltaire would point out, we never were totally content just to live in peace. We always wanted to evangelize. I mean, that's part of the nature of the Christian faith is that it's it's meant to be expansive and it's meant to be missionary. Uh, but that aside, we, we don't we don't want persecution at persecution, is not a good thing in itself, mm -hmm. despite the fact that God brings great good out of it. I want to return to the the subtitle of your book, which is why things are getting worse and how to prepare for what is to come. One of the major theses in your book is. Yes, persecution has always been with us. It's been part and parcel of the Christian story. And guess what? folks in 2023, things are only going to get worse from here. Why do you believe that? 
Yeah, that is that is that's probably the central thesis of the whole book, really. It's that the drivers of Christian persecution are are getting stronger and more intense, and the traditional bulwark against Christian persecution is growing weaker and even at times joining in the enemy with the enemy. So I think that the reason as if you look at it as kind of a formula that that you're getting a lot stronger uh, drivers of hostility uh, toward Christians and the traditional pillars that stood up against that and protected and defended Christians no longer have the will to do so. And so I think that we're looking at a situation where at least in the immediate future, in at least at least a decade or two, maybe more, maybe 50 years. I don't know how long it will continue, but it's definitely going to be going getting worse by the year, as 2023 was worse than 2022. Mm. I mean, even if you look at, at the numbers, at the facts and the figures, at the number of cases of churches that are desecrated, the number of Christians that are killed, uh, the statistics are getting worse. And if you look at places like the United States, and particularly under the, the current administration where the, the FBI is weaponized against Christians and against Catholics, uh, something that was kind of unheard of, at least in, in my experience, where you have growing hostility uh, to people of faith who want to serve in public office. I use the example of, of the way that, um, that, that nominees, appointees for the Supreme Court or even for the district courts have been grilled on, and with overtly uh, religious overtones to that, that their devotion is somehow considered an obstacle to them being able to adjudicate in an unbiased way. Um, this is something that just, it's growing. And, and I think also with acceptance of gay marriage and with uh, acceptance of abortion and some of these things that, that Orthodox Christians are never going to abide, we're going to look more and more, people will be able to say more and more, well, you're just a bunch of bigots, you're not up with the times your morality does not mirror the morality of our progressive state. Uh, and that will only bode ill for Christians. In your chapter on why things are getting worse, you talk about specific drivers of persecution in a 21st century context. I'm just going to rattle them off quickly. There are nine in total. Radical Islam, communist and post-communist oppression, religious nationalism, ethnic antagonism, tribal oppression, denominational protectionism, secular intolerance, dictatorial paranoia, and organized crime. Of those nine, which one or which ones of those nine jump out to you as more problematic? For me, the two on that list that really stand out the most are in terms of, of the number one driver of bloody persecution, without doubt in the world right now, it is radical Islam. Mm -hmm. By numbers, it's just by far and away. Um, and that is something also that even though you can maybe push back the Islamic state a little bit, there are all these other groups that are that are being founded at the same time. Um, and that is not going away. That is, is not getting weaker. Um, so that is number one. And really, it's the more um, radical form of secularism, which is really allied with agnosticism and, and, and uh, atheism in many cases that is growing and becoming stronger in the West, where um, you're, you're feeling that they're getting the upper hand and where it used to be assumed, well, you know, even John Locke said, well, you know, you can trust anyone except, he said, Catholics, and you can't accept atheists because you don't know if they're ever going to be true. They don't believe anything. You know, this kind of sense that atheists 
are not the most worthy of citizens. Now it's it's exact opposite, where they're getting the upper hand and it's the Christians that are under suspicion. And atheists are looked upon as the more rational, as the more enlightened. And I think that that is only going to continue. If we look at the facts and figures of this, this rise of the nuns or the knowns, N-O-N-E-S, those who profess no religious affiliation, it's growing so much so that in the United States now, it's almost a quarter of the population, which is really, you know, crazy, if you will, in, in just a generation, because, you know, just a few decades ago, when I was quite a bit younger, the, uh, you know, you were 90, 92% of the population uh, were overtly Christian. They were affiliated with Christianity, and that's just no longer the case. Your book makes the compelling case that these increasingly intense drivers of persecution, it's a perfect storm because they're converging with a diminishing religious literacy and rate of religious formation on the part of populations, uh, particularly in Western countries, and making Christian populations that much more susceptible to persecution. So what can we do about it? This is the chapter in your book where by the time people have reached it, they're probably some combination of agitated or alarmed or worried or worked up. And as we are wont to do, uh, we want solutions and instructions thrown at us. One thing I really loved about your book, and, and I'll say this as a political junkie and as a policy wonk, you know, I'm thinking, okay, what are the public policy prescriptions that we got to equip ourselves with? And that's not at all the tack that you chose to took. Instead, it's it's about the disposition of our hearts and minds. And I'd invite you to to speak a little bit more to that and, and what you articulated in your book in terms of a a program for action and response in light of what is very likely going to be a, a rise in, in persecution heading our way. I, I think that I, I really liked writing that chapter. I have to say it's the last chapter of the book. And I was kind of waiting for that moment to be able to sink my teeth into it because I think it's really important. I, I think that it comes at the end to kind of wrap everything up because you know, what do we do is, is the big question, because realizing the problem is very important, right? We have to be informed. We have to be aware. Uh, but on the other hand, that can just lead to, you know, <laughs> pessimism or depression or whatever it might be if there is no response. And I think that is, in the as in the case of everything for Christians, the response is in the formation of virtues. And what I try to do in that last chapter is to look at the specific virtues that are needed to form in our minds and our hearts to be able to stand up to, to this problem. And, and those virtues span from everything like courage or fortitude to really be ready to stand firm and, and not to deny Christ, not to, um, you know, not, not to bow down before these different, these different um, enemies of, of God. Um, on the other hand, I think it's very, very important, this, this question of remembrance, mm -hmm. of being aware, remembering, going back and looking at the teaching of Jesus, looking at the life of Jesus, looking at what he told us would happen, and then looking at the way early Christians lived that so beautifully. I think that, that gives us a lot of hope and a lot of strength. And it leads to the formation of another Christian virtue here, which is that of joy, being able to really rejoice in the Holy Spirit when we suffer something for Jesus and to recognize it for what it is, it's not just an inconvenience. It's not just, oh, shoot, I wish that hadn't happened or, or oh, that's that's tough luck or whatever. No, this is part of my vocation. As you said before, this is what we sign up for. And so that's, it's important to put it in that framework, I think, when we're living it.
Uh, another is prayer and prayer both, you know, as, as Jesus said in the, in, the, in the Last Supper before the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. And that pray part is both for ourselves that, that God will enlighten and strengthen us and be with us in those moments of, of trial and ordeal. But also a lot of it has to do with praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Maybe right now I don't feel any direct persecution in my life. Well, then I better get on my knees and be praying for my brothers and sisters who do that they will have that strength. Because some are wondering this day whether they're going to have that strength. They're wondering whether they're going to deny Jesus when, when it push comes to shove. You know, there was a case in, in Somalia where a busload uh, of passengers were taken off and members of Al-Shabaab, which was an Islamic terrorist organization, asked them one by one, are you a Christian? And those who are Christian, they shot them. You know, what do you answer as you're coming? And, and you see what's happening in the line. I'm Muslim. I'm the Christian. Boom. You know, what, do you have the strength? So prayer is, is hugely important here. But I think that this also, there is also a more proactive um, virtue in the sense of, of working politically even um, for the question of religious liberty. I don't think uh, Jesus ever intended or, or directed us to be resigned in, in the face of persecution. Yes, to know it's there and to be hopeful through it, be courageous through it, all these different things, and even thankful in a, in a way for it. But at the same time, to work to overcome it, I think is incumbent upon us also. Really, um, that, that religious liberty has to be rediscovered and has to be given the place that it, it, it deserves in, especially in the West, in the post-Christian West, we have to rediscover that bedrock upon which Christendom was founded in the first place. One of the, the anecdotes of the passages that I really enjoy the most in your book, just on this question of uh, checking that impulse to be resigned towards the, the prospect and the reality of persecution you kind of put a twist on uh, some of the words that Christ himself shared with us, but how those were mirrored by actions that he himself took. So yes, Christ told us to, to turn the other cheek, but when he was arrested and when he was brought before the authorities and his own cheek was smacked, uh, he put the question to his aggressor, why did you do that? What evil have I spoken? He himself modeled challenging those who would who would question or oppress us and he did it naturally uh in a godlike christ-like way he stood his ground uh with great witness he did and i think that it's like that three-word latin expression that pope benedict loved so much caritas in veritate charity in truth and then jesus was standing up for the truth in that moment he said if if there's something wrong in what i said pointed out and if there isn't why do you strike me in the sense that standing his ground, but also for the question of justice and the truth of the matter. What What is driving, you know, is there something wrong with what I said? And if there is, tell me what, tell me what it was. Um, so I think also, you know, part of this is really standing up for the truth and standing up for what should be and what society should look like. Um, and that does not do away with, I think, this understanding of also being willing to embrace the, the, the persecution and the, and the sufferings that come our way as our sharing in the cross of Christ. I think we're called to both of those. You've done so much research on this topic. 
there's entire chapters in your book devoted to the witness of the saints in the canon, the famous martyrs whose example we we remember and whose names we recite in the liturgy every Sunday. Uh, but you've also looked at uh, the present day martyrs, the 21st century and the 20th century martyrs. What's one or a couple of the stories of martyrdom and witness that really stand out to you and resonate? Well, there are there are there are so many. I, I think um, it, of the early martyrs. I've always been um, very drawn to Perpetua and Felicity in North Africa and Carthage. And a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go down to Tunisia and, and went to Carthage and went to the arena, the Colosseum, where they were put to death. And it was extremely moving for me because these were young women, and, and again, uh, they were always put forward to Christians as look that. It's the men and it's the women. It's it's not this natural strength. It is the strength of God. And uh, and there's a moment in that scene when Felicity, who is with child, is is crying out because of the pains of labor. And one of the guards pokes fun at her and says, if you can't bear that, how are you going to bear the arena? And she says what what good Christians say in these moments. She said, right now it's I am suffering, but Tomorrow, it'll be Jesus suffering in me. Mm. And, and I think that identification, I find that story absolutely beautiful. Um, of of the, the modern ones, one that you know I, I lived through, if you will, uh, very closely, and, and it's very moving to me, was the 21 martyrs on the Libyan beach at the hands of the Islamic State in 2015, in February 2015. Uh, again, because they had the opportunity to, to get out of it. They could have denied Christ and they would have been freed. And they chose not to. It, it was they weren't just shot in the back. They weren't just they, they had their, their throats slit because they were confessing Christ and because they would not relinquish that greater love, that greater fidelity. And even at the expense of their own lives. And I find that kind of witness so, so very compelling. And the fact that this is happening in our own day, I think, just brings it home for us. So. I mean, there are many more, of course, but those are two that come right to mind, one from the past, one from the present that, that have moved me tremendously. Well, Dr. Williams, uh, we've reached the end of our time. I want to sincerely thank you so much for being with us. And I do want to emphasize for our readers, notwithstanding the title of the book, The Coming Christian Persecution, Why Things Are Getting Worse and How to Prepare for What Is to Come. Ultimately, this is a book about hope. And there are so many stories and anecdotes that instill and inspire hope from your work. I think that in and of itself should commend the book for our listeners. I wanted to finish with two of the quotes that you cite in the book. One is from Hilaire Belloc, his famous uh, declaration that the church is a perpetually defeated thing that always outlives her conquerors. And then finally, the very last passage from your book is the, the quotation from Christ himself, uh, where he encourages us to hold on to hope with the commitment from him that he has overcome the world. So Dr. Williams, thank you so much for your time here today. It's been greatly appreciated. Well, you are a very gracious host, Patrick, and it's been, it's been delightful speaking with you. It's a, even though it's a tough topic, it's an important one, and I appreciate you giving it this time. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying Crown and Crozier, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd be grateful if you could help us reach more listeners by leaving us a rating or referring us to a friend. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Check out our website at crownandcrozier.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We're sincerely grateful for your support 
and we look forward to providing you with future episodes on church, state, and faithful citizenship.